Listen, I'm very, impri- I'm very proud of all of y'all. I'm, you know who I'm most proud of this morning? I'm most proud of the heirs. They have way more children than the rest of you. Yeah. I'm proud of Jay Flu for getting here early and making the coffee for all of us. Yes. God bless Jay Flu. And actually, I'm actually really grateful for Ed Hoagie. You know, one of the things that Ed has done so well since taking over as worship leader and why I'm so glad in God's providence he led him to, to be our worship leader is he's doubled the amount of people involved in our band. God knew our needs, um, and that means uh, people get less burned out. We have more people on stage to lead us, and so that's, that's a really awesome thing. Acts chapter 16 is where we're going in God's word this morning. All right, people, um, I'm going to need your help. I need you to talk to me this morning. We need to be a better talking church anyways. I need feedback. One, because I've been sick and so I don't have a whole lot of energy. And two, because you can tell my voice is about gone. And this is the first of three times I have to speak this morning. And so I, 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 need, I need you guys to give me some life. We need some back and forth. And if you want to be like, when you hear me squeak like a pubescent boy, you just shoot some prayers up to God and just go, Lord Jesus. Spirit of the living God, would you touch his throats and, and we're willing, we'll get through. Acts chapter 16 is where we are in God's word. We'll, we'll pick up there in verse 9 in just a minute. Um, and Acts, as we will see at various times in our study of this book over the last year and a half or so, is there are these um, seasons or these chapters where you'll come across where it'll these just be buckshot of conversions, where Many people are saved, or in there's chapters where there will be profiles of two and three and four and five people who have come to know Jesus in story after story, and we come to another one of those texts this morning. The church exists in large part to see conversions, to see people converted from a way of moving away from God and reliance upon him and trust in Jesus to being converted, having their life flipped upside down to where their life is leaning upon Christ. We want to see people come to faith in Jesus. Amen? There we go. That's right. We're going to just goad you into it. We want to see children converted. We want to see grandmas converted here at King's Chapel. Grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles. We want to see school teachers and principals and school students. We need coaches converted and be in our academic programs. We need teetotaling Baptists converted. We need Catholics converted and we need cold Presbyterians converted. We need retirees and teenagers and college students and moms and dads and their children. We need to see whole families Converted to Jesus. We want to see Alabama fans converted. In fact, you know how you'll know you're in hell? Because if you get there before your eyes even open, what you'll hear is, roll tide. That's why we sent Hamilton to Tuscaloosa, because they need Jesus. This is the benchmark This is the benchmark of fruitfulness for a church is are you seeing conversions? Are you seeing children come up on the stage at five and six and seven and eight and nine years old and profess faith in Jesus? Are you seeing 21-year-olds on football teams come and kneel before the Lord in all of their strength, becoming weak and saying, I follow Jesus? Do we see 58-year-old men who've walked away from the Lord and walked away from their families turn back to their families and say, I need Jesus? That's the benchmark for fruitfulness. 
Every business, every organization has benchmarks, and this is our benchmark. Conversions matter, especially in a day, especially in a day in America in which the church, in which we are, people are called the deconverted or the de-churched, in which people are fleeing the church and fleeing Christ at an unprecedented rate. In a study in 1990 of 18 to 29-year-olds, 7% checked the box of having no religion. In 2010, the same study was shown that now 35% check the box of no religion. In fact, in the last six or seven years, those numbers have increased even more dramatically. Sociologists say that in our country, we have seen such a dramatic move away from, from religion. And open, by the way, of that 7 to 35% change, 66% of those who have slipped, flipped are kids who grew up in the church. Conversions ought to matter to every mom and dad in this room. Because there is a world out there that is trying to convert them to their worldview, to their way of thinking. How many of you have grown children and grandchildren? This should matter for you grandparents. Conversion should matter to you. You long to see your grandkids' conversions. Well, I have good news for us this morning. Last week we looked at this, the fact that Jesus is sovereignly sending. But what we see this morning and what God providentially saved for us this morning is this, is that God, what Jesus is doing right now in heaven is not only is he sovereignly sending, but he is sovereignly saving. And what we see this morning is we get three profiles, three accounts of three conversions. When God invades and he converts, when he saves. We're going to look at these one by one. And we'll profile each person, show how what God used to save them and what happened in their life as a result. And then we'll look at some principles at the end this morning, some through lines, some parallels that run through each of these this morning. Pick up in verse 9 as we look at the first of these conversion accounts in Lydia. Verse 9, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night and a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had, women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. We'll finish there. Lydia. Lydia is our first conversion story this morning. Who was Lydia? Lydia, as we see in just a few uh, short descriptions here, they tell us a lot. Lydia was a wealthy businesswoman. She was a seller, a dealer in purple goods, which means that she was essentially in the high fashion industry. She sold to the wealthy of the wealth. She hobnobbed with the riches and the rich and the famous and the powerful. She was probably very, very wealthy. She was the CEO of her own company. Think of her the, of the queen of QVC. That's the type of woman that she was. She wasn't a wallflower. She was a go-getter. She was a strong businesswoman. But we also can see this, that she was also a moral person. We see that she's going out to pray on the Sabbath day. She is what is called a God-fearer. Now, this is actually a technical term in the New Testament, that she was somebody who feared the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but had not become a Jew. 
She had not become culturally or ethnically Jewish. She had not taken that on as her nation, but she was seeking to please and serve and live by the ethical codes of the Old Testament and the moral laws of the Jewish nation. It describes her as a worshiper. And she is going out, it says, to a prayer meeting. Now, this tells us something about Philippi. There was no synagogue. Paul's pattern when he would go into a city is he would go in and he'd immediately go to the place where the Jews worshipped, which was the local synagogue. But you needed at least 10 male Jews to start a synagogue in a city. There was no synagogue, which means there probably was hardly any men and probably very few Jews in the city to begin with. And so what we find is instead, these women out at a public place, a place in nature where they could go pray. Think of this as a Beth Moore Bible study that she is going to. And this is what Paul goes into and invades, a women's Bible study on a Sunday morning. And he goes and he shares the gospel. And how does God, what does God use to save Lydia? Well, look at what it says in verse 13. So on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. So what he's going to is he speaks to them. And actually, the, the term here for speaking to them is actually, it's debating or rationalizing with them. It means what Paul did is what he did many times when he would go into the synagogue. is he would open God's word, and then he would communicate what, this is what God's word is communicating to you and saying to you, but he would apply it and show how it pointed to Christ and was fulfilled in Christ and articulate and communicate the gospel through that. And so the women are sitting there reading their Hebrew Bibles, and Paul is sitting there, as Jesus did to the men on the road to Emmaus, as, um, as uh, Philip did to the uh, Ethiopian on the road out to Africa, he communicates to him the gospel from the Old Testament. And what happens? As he communicates to her the word of God, what happens to her? She is saved. And why? It says in verse 14, she is saved because the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul was, has said. Now, this is a theological statement that is being given in the midst of a narrative. It is communicating to us what must first happen before you can hear rightly. That many of you, this is your experience in life, and this is your testimony. It was a testimony like Lydia's. That the way in which you were saved was you spent year after year after year sitting under the preaching and the teaching of the word of God. But one day, like a flood, the light shone into your heart so that you finally heard for the first time. It wasn't that the gospel may not have been preached before that. It was that you did not have a heart to hear and it required a work of the Holy Spirit of the Lord God in your heart to open your heart to be able to receive the word of God. The Spirit moves through the word being communicated to open our hearts so that we then receive the very word that is opening our hearts that the Spirit is moving through. This is your testimony for many of you. That you, you are somebody, you are a moral person. You're an American growing up in affluence and morality. This was your life. And that you were saved in the quiet, in the quiet of a prayer meeting, in the quiet of a family devotions, in the quiet sometime after a church service in which you went home and responded to the gospel. Let me ask you this. We're simply even, we'll even take hands, right? We're going to go with some, some back and forth. How many of you, is, you would say that this is your kind of story? You have a Lydia type story. That's my story is that I lived day in and week out and day in and day out under the word of God until one day God shone in, in my heart and I was awakened to the word of God. But I want you to see what happens in her life. Let me see what happens in her life. Is that her life is changed from a life of morality and riches. And those things are great and wonderful. But she is given freedom in the gospel. And what, are, so what happens in her life? It doesn't necessarily have to take on a radical turn. She's already a fairly moral person. 
Her life is fairly well put together. But what do we see in Lydia's life? In verse 15, it says this, after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, I like this chick. This woman is, it says she beat Paul in an argument. Paul's a pretty persuasive guy. And yet she's, Paul says, that Luke says that she prevailed upon Paul. She convinced Paul to come stay in her house. This is not a wallflower. She's not one who takes no for an answer. And yet God, as he converts her and changes her, she begins to see that her life and her household and all that she has is now meant for the kingdom of God. It immediately turns to, how can I serve this apostle and serve the church? In fact, we see in the, in the history of the church of Philippi, most likely that she becomes, her home becomes the base for the church in Philippi. In verse 40, at the very end of the chapter, it says that after Paul and Silas are released from prison, the place they go in order to meet the those who had become believers was Lydia's house. That as, the, as, the financially, uh, as the financially wealthy one, she was probably the one who provided. She was the financial benefactor for those who had come out of slavery or those who were impoverished who would come and join the church. She is not simply a Christian woman whose life is well put together and comes to Bible study and then goes to yoga, but her life is completely lived out in applying the word into deed. And her life is lived for the kingdom. And you might say, you might ask the question, because I had this conversation with someone this week who, whose mother was this type of person. They're well off. They're naturally hospitable. They have unbelievable CEO and administrative abilities. And so the question is, when this person gets converted, what does it look like for them to change? Well, you know what? Is, is, what he was asking is, is my mom's love for having people in her home simply because this is her natural proclivities or because the Spirit of God is doing something? You know what? It's probably both. Because God uses your natural abilities and he uses them for his kingdom and for his glory. But you know what? Where you'll probably see growth. If you're the type of person who, before you became the Lord, your life was actually pretty clean. It was pretty, it was pretty nice. What does it look like? Two things, probably. More joy. And by that, I mean you're now set free, in which you don't have people in your home because it's your duty. It's because it's your delight. And the second thing is more sacrifice. That if you're the hospitable person, you have more joy in hospitality, and there's more sacrifice in your hospitality. Now, this is incredibly important because of the type of person who becomes a believer next. A crazy person. And yet, these, these type of people, it's the jailers, and it is the slave girls who are demon-possessed that end up joining the church, and whose home do they walk into? Nice and tidy, Lydia's. Beautiful Lydia's. Lydia's, who lives, uh, who lives in the nicest part of town and has the nicest home in the community, who's the wealthiest person in the church, and whose house do they come into? They come into Lydia's home. Lydia, in her hospitality, takes on the sacrifice of taking the down and outers. It is not simply that she goes from hanging out with the rich and famous and hanging out with the, to hanging out with the Christian pretties. She goes and hangs out with those who are down and out. Her hospitality is sacrificial. This is the type of woman that she becomes. So this lady is fun to be around. Lydia is a rock star. She becomes the cornerstone for the church. This is the type of person that you want. Spirit of the living God. Right? <laughs> Fall fresh on me. She's a rock star. You want her in your church. She is gonna, she's going to establish that church financially and sacrificially and hospitality. She's going to give it relevance. The next person, we're not so sure we want in our church. Let's pick up. Verse 16. As we're going to the place of prayer, 
we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by her fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaimed you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. All right, we see a very different conversion account here, don't we? Lydia was already moral, ethical, high integrity, highly successful, high capacity, spiritual. She read her Bible. She worshiped every Sabbath day. You can't have anybody more opposite than Lydia, than this girl. This woman was not just irreligious. She was demon-possessed. That's about as far in the opposite direction as you can possibly go from Lydia, isn't it? And not only that, but it says, this, there's the word here talking about her being a, a, someone who, a fortune teller says, literally it means that she has the spirit of divination. Or in the Greek, it means that she has the, the spirit of python. You see, in the, the, the god of the city of, of, of Philippi was the god Apollo. And the god Apollo was um, uh, symbolized in the figure of a python. The python was considered to be the protector of Apollo in his physical manifestation in the world. And the python was known, and one of the great powers of Apollo was to be able to foretell the future. So in a city where this is, in which people value this, in which this is the God that is served, this is a woman who can make you a lot of money because she can speak for Apollo, so to speak. She has the snake tongue to be able to tell you what is going on in the future. She's kind of like somebody who would have the crystal ball, if you have that kind of imagery. This girl was highly valued, not for who she was, though, but for what she could do. She was a commodity. She was owned both spiritually and physically, right? She was possessed by a demon, but it also communicates that she is a slave. She is at the whims of evil men who would use her, use her abilities, use her mind, use her, her broken state, For their own gain, she is owned. She is enslaved in seemingly every possible way you can imagine. She's owned by the devil himself. Yet God has a way of crushing serpents and setting captives free. It's almost comical what happens in this account. She's following Paul and the apostles around, and they're trying to share the gospel. And she's just wandering around, just pointing out to everybody, Hey, hey, they're from the Most High God. That's because demons speak the truth, but they don't believe. And the thought is perhaps she's trying to discredit Paul by connecting herself to this message. But in any way, we're not sure. And the language of the text here is very interesting, depending on the, the translator's moods. And I'm not sure, depending on what translation you have, that word annoyed. <laughs> that Paul, he's trying to preach. It's like me kind of pacing back and forth trying to preach and somebody's up here following me around going hey the most high God hey the most high God and finally Paul after multiple days of this it says now I would be annoyed turns and casts the demon out of her now the other way the same terminology could actually be that he was grieved in spirits it could be that he was compassionate for her now listen that's interesting God can use your compassion it's also possible that God could use your annoyance (laughs) To work through you. But either way, we're not entirely sure. It's not so clear. But either way, God uses works through Paul. Now understand this. It is not Paul that casts out this demon. And whose name, by whose name does Paul cast out this demon? 
and the power of the name of Jesus. There's a, a, a story that we're going to look at actually in a couple of weeks in Acts chapter 19. Where some men see Paul and some of the, or some of the apostles doing this demon casting out uh, act. And they go, hey, that's pretty cool. We want to be able to do that. And so they see somebody in their town who's demon possessed. And they go to him and they start bossing the demon around. And it's one of the funniest accounts in Acts because the demon speaks to him. And the demon goes, I know Paul. I've heard of Paul. And I know Jesus, but I don't know who you are. And the demon leaps out of the demon-possessed person and beats up these guys to the point where they have no clothes on. Why? Because they try to speak out of the power of their name. Paul speaks out of the power of Jesus. And you understand this, this is what this woman needs. What changes her is that she is confronted with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. What is Jesus doing? Acts chapter 1, we saw it last week. He went to, he ascended to a throne where he reigns over all things. He reigns over the the earthly world and over the spiritual realm. And the only thing, demons are powerful. And the only thing that that will save this person who's in this kind of slavery and this kind of enslavement is if there is an, a, a confrontation with the king of kings and the Lord of lords who comes in and takes over because only the king has the right to take over a heart in the way he does here, to cast out the demon and take on the throne of their life. Because when the message of the gospel is powerful, because it comes with the authority of the king, and that gospel message coming with the authority of the king sets the enslaved free. This is why Jesus came, and this is why we proclaim. Real quick application in regards to missions. And in regards to you who are maybe grandparents or parents or friends, listen, there are things in this world we tend, because we have a highly psychologized therapeutic culture in which we will look at all kinds of acts of um, bizarre behavior and we will say that's a chemical imbalance. And maybe it is. But we should not denigrate the possibility of demon possession or the fact that the demon possession could be behind those chemical imbalances. There are things in which the demons do in people's lives. You see it with unbelievable addictions. I was talking to somebody yesterday who is in uh, North Carolina. He's a pastor in that area, in one, an area that's, called, that's essentially known as the opioid capital of America. In which as the pastors are having to get together because there are so many people in their congregations who are so addicted. They're throwing their lives. They're wasting all of their money, all of their children's money, all of their parents' money, and trying to get opioids day after day after day. And it's ruining their lives. It's taken over. It's enslaved them. And what do those people need? They need a, an unbelievable confrontation. They do need that, what we would think of as the, the classic testimony. They need there to be some conversion, a radical conversion that occurs in which the king invades their life. And here's the beautiful truth for us is that we get to be the messengers of this freedom. There was a a movie that came out in 2009 starring starring Woody Harrelson. It's called The Messenger. It's about a, um, a, a military man whose job was to walk along military bases and his job was to Um, go to people's doors and to share with them that their sons or husbands or fathers had died in Iraq. And this would be his job day in and day out. And it was the movie was about how, it was an incredibly moving movie, but the weight that was put on him and the message that he had to bring, brothers and sisters, we get to be the opposite. 
You get to be messengers of a gospel that is quite the opposite, a gospel of resurrection and a gospel of freedom, that the dead can be made alive again, that the captives can be set free, and that is the message that you get to bring. Now, what happens in her life? I want you to see this as well, because this is important. Because we normally think of life change as being pietistic, and it should be. Your individual life, when you are changed, when you are converted, you should become more like Jesus in the sense that you should begin to obey his law. But I also want you to see this, that there are kingdom implications. That is the gospel of the kingdom, that when the king invades, he changes the landscape of the land in which you live. When she is pulled out of this enslavement, she is not simply pulled out of her spiritual bondage, but she is now no more use to a corrupt economic system. You see that they have to throw her aside. She is of no more use to them, in which the government and the corporations essentially here are colluding to create a system of injustice, and she is of no use to it anymore. And so she is set free from not simply the demon possession, but also from a system of injustice that is going on in this world. You see, this when in Acts, what we see is when the gospel comes to cities, it does not simply change people's individual lives. It changes whole cities. It changes whole systems. Let me see if I can give you an example of this, even from the United States. There's a man named Robert Linthigam, um, who was a pastor in an urban setting in the Midwestern cities, Milwaukee, Detroit, Chicago, and he tells a story when he was a youth minister and an intern. He would go into the cities during the summers and do these urban ministry during the, during the summer there in the, in, the, in the midst of some of the most difficult neighborhoods and work with the youth there. And he tells a story in one of this man's book um, of a girl named Ava. And Ava, he says, was exceptionally beautiful, but her whole life was a train wreck. Her family, everyone in her family was utterly drug addicted. Everyone in her extended family was drug addicted. She had no future. She had no means of providing for herself. Her school was terrible. It was a failing school system that she was in. She essentially had no hope. And not only that, but the area where she lived in it was essentially controlled by gangs. And as a 14-year-old, they were recruiting her, in fact, trying to force her to move, go into the prostitution industry. But during this season of life, through this youth ministry that this man, Robert Linthigam, was running, she became a believer. And hope began to invade her life. And before he left at the end of the summer, she was telling this man, this youth pastor, about the incredible pressure she was under from the area gangs in her life that were wanting her to move into the prostitution ring. And she said it was so difficult to keep them away because they provided the money and provided protection. And he, was, he pleaded with her. He said, do not give in. And he said, this is how I went about it. I said, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. Stick with your youth group. Keep doing your daily prayer and your Bible study, and you won't fall into temptation. So he goes back off to school, and he comes back the next summer, and he goes to track down some of the students he had worked with the previous summer, and he finds Ava, but he finds that Ava, she confesses that she has given herself over to the prostitution ring. And he asked, how in the world, how could you do this? And she said, well, here's why. Because they came, and they sexually abused my mother, and they threatened to kill my father. And so I was forced to join them. And he said, Ava, why did you not go to the police? And she said, who do you think they are? You see, she was living in a system that had taken on both a corporate aspect, a financial aspect, and even a governmental structure that was unjust. And what he realized that if there's going to be salvation in this part of the city, there's going to be salvation in this world, that I cannot simply bring spiritual salvation, but there must be implications of that that is not as more than simply read your Bible and pray. 
But we must bring justice into this area to set the captives free. That part of the Christian message, there's a reason why it's the gospel of the kingdom. Because a kingdom involves all aspects of your life, does it not? A kingdom involves your welfare, and involves food, and involves finances. That when the kingdom comes in your life, it changes everything. And that's what we see going on here. Ava needed liberation both spiritually and socially. And this is what the gospel promises to bring. It may be slow, but the gospel promises to bring, at least at the end of all things, that at the end of all things, God will come and he brings his kingdom down to make all things new. To bring a system of justice. But I also want you to see this, what happens in her life. And this is somewhat speculation, but I believe she was saved. Because in, G, in the, the Gospels, Jesus talks about this, that if he casts out a demon from somebody, it's simply a thousand more demons will take the place of that demon. And so he doesn't cast demons out unless he's going to replace the demons with himself in a person's heart. And so he places himself in this woman's heart. And what, what you see is when he brings her, he doesn't simply save her, he brings her into a family, doesn't he? He brings her into the life of Lydia. Here's Lydia. Her life is well put together. She knows how to do life. And yet here's a woman whose life from top to bottom is an utter mess. This is a woman who's probably been abandoned by her family, who's been enslaved her whole life, and yet now she's given to the woman who, has, who can provide for her and care for her. She's given a spiritual mother. These are the first two people we see born into the church in Philippi. And they are brought together. See, the slave girl, the orphaned one, is given a family. And she is set free. Now, there's an angry response to this as we turn our eyes to the jailer. The slave owners don't like this, do they? Because all they care about is the girl, so they cast her aside. And they're very angry, picking up in verse 20. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept and practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them, gave orders to beat them in throds. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safe. So what happens, they make up charges against them. So the magistrates in their form of vigilante justice take Paul and Silas and they beat them and they put them in prison. So that's what's going on. Picking up now as we turn to the prisoner, or the jailer. Verse 24. Having received this order, what's the last order? To keep them safe. All right. Understand that juxtaposition about what we're just going to read. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself. For we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The famous conversion of the Philippian jailer is what we see here. Now, who was this man? He was most definitely, almost certainly, a former Roman soldier. See, Philippi was a city that was um, essentially started by former Roman soldiers. It was kind of the retirement village for ex-Marines. It's that kind of place. And for those that were particularly um, good soldiers, they got a good, cushy retirement job, such as becoming the jailer at the local prison. 
And so this is what this man was doing. But what we see here, what you see is this man is utterly hardened. He is unfeeling and cruel. His job is to keep them safe. Now, what has just happened to Paul and Barnabas? Now, interesting enough, that they, they beat them to within an inch of their life, and they say, hey, please give, keep them safe. But he's supposed to keep them safe. Does he bind their wounds? Does he help protect them from disease? No. He throws them into their part of the jail, the worst part, the most disgusting part of the jail. And not only that, but he puts their legs and arms in stocks. Now, this isn't the kind of stocks that you see in Frontierland at Disney World. These were stocks that were meant to be a torture device in which it pulled your legs and your arms so far back you'd be extended to the point it would pull your joints nearly out of sockets. This is the place that Paul and Silas are at. He is cruel. They've been beaten to the inch of their life, and yet he puts them in a, probably a rat-infested, insect-infested inner part of the cell in essentially a torture device. He's, right, he's downright abusive. And yet what does God use to save this man? It's interesting. God uses the word of God, a Bible study, to save Lydia. He uses a power encounter to save the slave girl. But neither of these things necessarily work for this man. You see, this is a military man. This is a blue-collar guy. This is your pragmatic southern man who he has won everything by his own blood, sweat, and tears. He doesn't need some emotional experience. And he doesn't need to have some Bible-pounding preacher tell him what to do. What, what does he need? This man needs the gospel lived out before him. And that's exactly what Paul and Silas do. See, this man is turned to the gospel in two ways. It is the gospel enacted. In two ways. First, how does he see the gospel enacted? First, he sees Paul and Silas singing in the face of their suffering. This is a man who has been in battle. He's seen men cry out in the face of suffering. He's seen men full of fear in the face of suffering. But perhaps he's never seen men sing in the face of suffering in this way. They sing. They're praising God. This is something utterly different than anybody he's seen beaten up in this way come into his jail. But the second thing, and perhaps even more powerfully, is he experiences their forgiveness. See, God sends this earthquake. Sends this earthquake, and it says the doors open, all the shackles of the prisoners are set free, and everyone can now be set free. They can all run out of the jail. And so this jailer is about to kill himself because this is an honor system. That if you let these prisoners out, this is a matter of humiliation, he was going to be put to death. He was taking his life into his own hands. He was taking control of it, saying, listen, I ain't going out in front of everybody. I'm going to take my own life. This is the honorable way to go if prisoners escaped. Paul and Silas, they can escape now. They can, they can flee the injustice that they're experiencing. And yet they don't do it. And not only that, but they convince all the other prisoners not to leave either. Why? Because they knew if they left, it was, the, it was at the forfeit of the life of the Philippian jailer. In other words, what changes this man? It was to see, experience in front of him that for all the evil and the cruelty that he had expu- brought upon them, they had they had responded with grace and forgiveness. They had saved his life. And this is how they respond to him. And it's to this that he says, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to have this kind of life that you would forgive one who would treat you as treacherously as this? To have the line of life that you could have such, be such free of fear and be so full of joy that even in the midst of this suffering and this abuse that you would sing. I want that life. I want to know that God. And so he falls down at the feet of Jesus, and what happens in his life. You see, not only is he baptized, what does it say? He brings them back to the jail, and what does he do? He begins to bind their wounds. 
The man who was known for cruelty at the beginning of the story is now known for his compassion. He is a changed man. All right, I want to transition for our last 10 minutes this morning. I want to draw three parallels or three unifying factors within each of these stories because they're vastly different stories. Bizarre in, in their differences, but there are some unifying themes. The first is this. God saves all kinds of people. You see, the gospel is for all people because God is saving all kinds of people. The gospel is not just for the pretty, moral, religious people. It is not for the completely and utterly jacked up. But the gospel is also for truck drivers and mechanics. It's for sergeants and security guards. It's for sinners and saints. It's for soccer moms and it's for sluts. It's for all people in all socioeconomic brackets. It's for all peoples. The gospel's for everybody. Now, you know what's incredible here? That Paul, Paul's the one who is the God uses to bring all three of these people to the Lord. And you know what Paul was? Paul had been a Pharisee even. And you know the prayer, of a, the most famous prayer of a Pharisee is this, that he would stand in the temple and they say, thank you God that I'm not a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. And who are the three people who are saved in this text? A woman, a slave, and a Gentile. And yet God uses Paul the Pharisee to bring them to salvation. And so here's the question, because some of us stand here today because of either our sinfulness or because of our religiosity or because we are enslaved in some sort of way in this world, and we wonder, can we be saved? Or even we wonder, do I even need to be saved? And I would ask you this, have you been converted? Have you been converted? Have you had God invade your life in the way that these people had God invade their life? There is no one who does not meet God's category. Excuse me, I said that wrong. Everyone, everyone meets God's categories for salvation. If you're a sinner, you need it and you can receive it. This is what God has been doing for all of eternity. And how are you saved? It's the simplicity of the whole thing, isn't it? We see it so clearly in the story of the Philippian jailer. How are you saved? Paul says, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Here's a man, similar to Lydia. Here's a man who has who's lived his whole life by his own, pulling himself up by his own bootstraps. He's achieved everything by the sweat, blood, and tears of his own hands. And yet he falls down. You think that he would be expecting that Paul and Silas are going to tell him something, something radical he has to do. Yet what do they say? Simply repent and believe. Simply turn your gaze. You see, you know what repentance is in this, in this case? Repentance is to move yourself away from all attempts to try to save yourself. And belief is to say that Jesus has done all the work for me. I have no work to bring. You've done all the work for me. And because that salvation is a work that is done solely and simply by Jesus, it means that this salvation can be given to all peoples of all kinds in all places. God saves all kinds of people. Second, God saves in all kinds of ways. God saves in all kinds of ways. You see, it's, it's amazing. And in particular, he, he, he saves in all kinds of ways through us. I would have drawn this out more in connection to last week's, but it's amazing how God uses Paul in all kinds of scenarios. In Lydia, he uses a Bible study. With the slave girl, he uses confrontation. And, and yet, in, in Lydia, it, you know, Paul talks about the fact that, he, is he a great speaker? No, he was known for possibly not being a good speaker, but not being very persuasive. And yet, God has always used crooked sticks. He speaks through donkeys to bring people to himself. And that is the kind of, that's the gospel that we get to bring. He can bring, use you. He can use us to confront the addictions in this world, 
to confront the systems of injustice. The slave girl was converted because she was confronted with the king of kings. And you get to bring the message of the king to this world. How is, this, how is the jailer saved? The jailer is saved because God's people, and through Paul, God works through Paul here to save him by exemplifying the gospel indeed. And by the way, I think we probably need a lot of this. A lot of this. You know, one of the most recent stats, there's a man named Steve Thomas, he's a pastor, well-known pastor in Britain. He said this, that it's the recent study, it said that 70% of Brits say they have no intention of ever attending a church service. Not on Christmas, not on Easter, never, never, never. Which means this, all of our efforts to have big time programs in churches and all of our mega church efforts to think that we can draw people in, it will not work. Because this is where our society is going. People are not willing to darken the doors of our churches, which means this, you have to go out and you have to rejoice in the midst of suffering and you have to forgive those who are awful to you. This is how the gospel will move forward. But I want you to see, what I want you to see here is that when God uses all kinds of things, he uses Paul's suffering, he uses Paul's weakness, he uses Paul's songs, he uses Paul's proclamation of the word, he uses Paul's confrontation of the evil beings in this world, he uses all these things. But what I want you to see for Paul as the missionary, what I want for you who are believers, as you've been called in this missionary work, are you willing to have God use any aspect of your life to bring people to come to know Jesus? There's a strange account at the very end of this in verses 36 through 40. In which Paul, they want to let Paul go. They realize he's a Roman citizen. And Paul goes, hey, I'm a Roman citizen. And they go, oh no, we just beat the snot out of a Roman citizen. This is a big time no-no. And they're like, hey, you just, you leave, Paul. Get out of town as quickly as possible. And Paul says, "Uh -uh -uh uh-uh-uh-uh. I did not receive justice. Now, why would Paul do that? He didn't take it up for his own good earlier. He could have told them earlier that he was a Roman citizen. Why not? I don't know. But it appears he takes it up here in order to protect the church, to give legitimacy to the church in Philippi, to protect the other believers who are there. In other words, this I want you to think about this as American citizens. Listen, there are injustices in our country. But as many of you know, if you've been to another country, it is vastly better here than anywhere else. Right? We should fight for social justice here. But we should also understand, recognize the beautiful gift that we have been given. And what Paul uses is he uses his, even his citizenship for the good of the kingdom. Not to claim his own rights. Not necessarily to protect himself. Not to say, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. Everybody, you've got to protect me. But what? He laid down his blessings even for the good of those around him. So that he might win some for the gospel. This is what Paul does. Are you willing to lay down your citizenship? To use your power, your wealth, every aspect of your life that you might win some for the gospel. Lastly, lastly, we end with this. God saves all kinds of people in all kinds of ways, but through one kind of Savior, right? In all three encounters, it is still Jesus at the center of it. It is the word of the gospel which points to Jesus being the center of the, of the gospel, of the Bible, of the scriptures, the one who is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, that it is the King Jesus, it is by the power of the name of Jesus that demons are run off, And it is by the gospel witness of men and women who live out the life of Jesus, the fact that one who would come and suffer and die in our place, that Paul and Silas are willing to do that, that Jesus' life lived out in front of them, that the jailer comes to know Jesus. See, Jesus is the one who saves. Jesus is the one who's sending, and Jesus is the one who's saving. You know what? There's good news about the church in Philippi. 
Because 10 years later, when when Paul is near the end of his life, he writes his most joyful book called Philippians. And he writes to a thriving church meeting in Lydia's house. And he says this, I thank God in all my remembrance of you that he who began a good work in you, did you start it? Did Paul start it? Jesus started it. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the coming of Christ Jesus. Jesus saves. He is our salvation from beginning, middle, and end. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for story after story after story and your word that show us that you're the God who saves, that it is not up to us is not up to our own abilities, but you're the one who invades. God, I thank you that when you left this earth, you sent your spirit into your people to take the beautiful message of your gospel to the ends of the earth so that men and women, saints and slaves and soldiers can all come to know Jesus. Gracious Heavenly Father, I pray that the joy and the hope of this this truth to hear conversion stories would give some of us in this room hope for our children, for our grandchildren, for our friends. And that hope would push us, would launch us into answering the question, what are we willing to give up? What are we willing to give, hand over to the Lord in submission that he would use to bring our friends and our sons and our daughters to the Lord? May our answer be everything, God. Everything. And would you do your saving work through us? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.